0: Good morning everyone. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, please. Revelation 5. I thank the Basic boys for passing our outlines out. These may look familiar to you. It's because we got halfway through uh, the outlines the last time I shared. And we'll take the second half of the thoughts, and that is from Revelation 5 today. Some weeks ago, I shared in the thought of may Jesus Christ be praised. The chapter we looked at was Revelation chapter 4. There we saw the Apostle John thrilled with the sights that he saw in heaven. He wrote them down for us in great detail. He wrote about angels, 24 elders, an emerald rainbow, and so much more. And even with all the details in John's description, there is so much that's left for us to imagine, for us to ponder, for us to anticipate. Heaven is beyond our imagination. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither is entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. It tells us in 1 Corinthians two nine. The object that focused John's attention in Revelation 4 was the throne. The throne of God is mentioned 12 times in 11 verses in Revelation 4. We thought of it as a throne of grandeur. The grandeur and glory of creation was the focus of John in the fourth chapter. And the song that was sung, now we're being liberal there, it doesn't say that they were singing, but I trust that it'll be melodious. So the song that was sung is to the Lord of creation. It says there in the fourth chapter, Worthy are you, O Lord, and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now in chapter 5, there's a change. The throne is still in view. It's mentioned five times in the 14 verses of chapter 5, but there is one, some with a capital S and one with a capital O, someone that occupies John's attention, And the praise of the living creatures, the angels, the elders, and John. But not just John. It's also getting the attention of every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them joined together in an unprecedented anthem of blessing, glory, and honor to this worthy one. May we all say, think, and respond to our Bible our time this morning. Being prepared for this heavenly occasion described for us at the end of Revelation 5. Indeed, may Jesus Christ be praised. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture together. Father, I thank you for this, for both of these chapters. They're both so wonderful, so marvelous, just so filled with the glory of the Lord and the response by those that see him and perceive him. So we thank you for this opportunity to enter into this scene that John saw and that he recorded for us in such detail. Raise our hearts, we pray, dear God. Help us to be a praising people. Help me to praise my God this day for the salvation that was won for me on the cross, for the membership in God's family, for an eternal home, for an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that cannot fade away, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Moth does not corrupt. Thank you for the looking forward to the fellowship with other believers, folks that I know, friends that have gone on before, and people that I have never met, who will all be giving their testimonies and praises to Jesus Christ, their Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this series of messages called May Jesus Christ Be Praised, these two chapters in Revelation 4 and 5 are like a mountain of gold. Everything in them is precious, valuable, and open for us to see. There is no need to mine treasure here. You don't need to go deeply into it. Now, you can delve deeply and plumb the depths of what's said, but it's all plainly there. Just rocks of gold, nuggets of gold for us to pick up. We read, we rejoice, we worship, and we praise. So let's read together Revelation chapter 5. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, God will bless the reading of his word this morning. In chapter 4, we had a throne of grandeur. In this chapter, we have a throne of grace. In chapter 4, we had the Lord of creation. In this chapter, we have the Lamb of Calvary. But before we have these things, we have a thoughtful question about the scroll in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll with the seven seals on it? As we read the next several chapters in Revelation, we see that the seven seals of this scroll lead to seven trumpets, which lead to seven bowls, all of which, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, have to do with God's judgment of the earth at the time of the great tribulation. To prepare the nation of Israel and other nations of the earth for the triumphant return of the Lord to the earth, the return of the Lord to the earth, to establish His kingdom here on earth for a thousand years of peace and prosperity. This scroll leads to the kingdom of God and the one who will sit upon the throne on earth, in that kingdom. With the document of judgment, the scroll of seven seals, a thoughtful question is asked by a mighty angel. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? There are two things that have to be done. You have to take the scroll and then you have to open its seals of the myriads of angels, cherubim, seraphim, living creatures, those who have thrones and dominions among the 24 elders, and as we see at the end of this chapter, all of the saved people who occupy heaven, that is, the raptured church, the saints before the flood, the saved of Israel, the martyred and tortured from the time of the tribulation after the church's rapture, who among all of these creatures is worthy to take the scroll? The answer is found in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. What? There's no one among the creatures of God that's worthy to open the scroll? How about the first man, Adam? How about Enoch, the first raptured man? What about Noah, who was brought through the watery judgment of God upon the earth? Surely Abraham, the great ancestor of the nation of Israel. Moses, the writer of five books of the Bible. What about Eve, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, anyone? We go through the various ones in Scripture. Job, Joseph, Ruth, Hannah, David, the woman of Proverbs 31, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Daniel. What about the New Testament saints? Isn't there someone worthy? Peter, James, John, Paul. What about the angels? Gabriel, the messenger angel, Michael, the archangel. The verdict is in no one is worthy. Now, the angels knew their position in relation to the authority of God. They covered their faces and their feet in his presence. They did the Lord's bidding, being his messengers and agents, his servants. At the creation, the angels shouted for joy, it tells us in the book of Job. Only one pride-filled, beautiful angel tried to place himself in the same level as God. That was Lucifer now called the devil, Satan, and apparently along with a third of the angelic hosts, rebelled against the authority and the holiness of God. Yet, he and they are subject to the authority of God. Job tells us that Satan appears before God and has to give an account of what he's doing. And God sets limits on how far Satan can go as far as touching Job is concerned. Every demon was silenced at the Lord Jesus' command during His ministry here on earth. Angels realize that they're not worthy to take this scroll. We go through the list of the Bible and we see men and women of sterling character and conduct, but none of them dare step forward and take the scroll and open its seals. We look at Ruth and we can't help but being moved by her loyalty to her mother-in-law, her labor in the fields of Boaz, her love for her kinsman, Redeemer. Yet, she's a Moabite. And prior to her salvation, she was a sinner, steeped in the worship of false gods. We look at Hannah, one of the bright, brilliant stars against the blackness of the time of the judges. She's pleading with God to give her a child, And when God gives her that God-given child, she is faithful in her promise to give the little son back to God. Yet, she caused grief to her husband because of her responses to Penaniah, his other wife, and her provocation. We think of Joseph and Daniel and their exemplary conduct from their early ages. Bible teachers have told me over the years about these two men that there's nothing noted in the scripture about any sinful conduct by them. We can't find anything and pin it on them. I remember my dad speaking to me about Joseph saying, You know, son, Joseph took the impoverished Egyptians and made slaves out of them, completely subject to Pharaoh. Think about it. He had saved all of that grain, seven years' worth, and it was available. That was the plan. But here's what Joseph did. First of all, he made the Egyptians turn in their money. Then he made them turn in their livestock and finally turn over their land to Pharaoh in exchange for the grain that these Egyptians had produced. Do you find that fair? Do you find that just? My dad did have a strong sense of justice and injustice, and he pointed this out about Joseph. Now we go to Daniel. Though we find nothing in the conduct of Daniel or nothing said against him, we find this in his intercessory prayer in chapter 9 that he prays, O Lord, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Daniel uses the first person plural. It's not they who sinned or your people who sinned. He includes himself as a sinner. We have sinned. So though there's no record of Daniel and any sin that he committed. Daniel says, I'm a sinner. Wherever we turn among God's people, there is no one worthy to take the scroll. It is a heavenly indictment of the whole human race, of our sinfulness and complete inability to exercise judgment upon the earth it is man's inability to rule and an inability to judge righteously after the lord's resurrection let's take what happened in telescoping it down we have the conquest by rome the conflicts between rome and constantinople we have castles that are built for private kingdoms We have Catholicism, colonialism, capitalism, coercion by dictators, communism, commercialism, conflagration by the world being in flames in two world wars, killing tens of millions of people, especially young people. And we have the contemporary man-made problems that we have today. Wherever you look, in whatever portion of history, the inability of man to rule the earth And certainly to rule it righteously is completely absent. In this silence, this awful, awkward silence that's there in heaven of who's worthy to take the scroll, something extraordinary happens, and I believe it's unprecedented in the biblical record. There's weeping, loud weeping in heaven, by a saved human being. It's here for us in verse 4. I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. How can John experiencing the thrills, the throngs, and the throne of heaven be weeping? The reason for for it is stated, there's no one that's worthy. And the weeping goes on. And those that are gathered there that are saved, that are bought by the blood of the Lamb, the angelic creation that has chosen God, that silence is finally broken by a sympathetic elder. One of the elders comes over to him in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, is conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The elder who has been extolling the Lord now points to a lion, and John sees a lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain. Here we he moved from the Lord of creation to the Lamb of Calvary. A lamb as though it's been slain. The Lord of glory is now seen in heaven as the Lamb of Golgotha. The Lord of glory is now seen as the Lamb of Golgotha. One can wonder, John, how could you have missed the Lamb? How could you have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? He was there the whole time. Your own writings dwell in the Lord Jesus, in your gospel, and in the three books that you've written. They dwell, they spend time, they focus on Him. How could you have missed Him? I ask myself the same question in so many times in my life. How could you have missed the Lord in trial, in triumph, and in tragedy? How could I have missed the Lord? He was right there with me and right there with you, right there with all of us at every moment of our lives. How can we have missed the Lord? Heather was sick in the hospital. Pregnant with our second son, and she was having a terrible time breathing. I owned a lot up here in Galbraith Road with intentions of building a home by myself on that lot, and Heather had a tough night. Debbie Bailey was a nurse at the hospital where Heather was. And she told me, quite frankly, you know, Heather had a tough night last night. So hard we weren't sure that she was going to make it. I was at home with Josh, little baby Josh. Within two months of that time, Heather was better. A new baby had been born in our family, healthy and well. We were concerned about the drugs that they had given to Heather, if it would affect the baby. The lot, which was hopelessly mine, (laughs) and the plans to build the home had been sold for an additional $5,000 beyond what I paid for it. And we owned a new home on Holly Tree Lane here in Finneytown, And on December 1st, Heather and I, with a month-old baby in one arm of one of us and a year-old baby in the other, bowed our heads in prayer in what would become our dining room in that place. You see, the Lord was with me. But going through it, Really, I had such a hard time seeing the Lord. That's my experience that I relate to you. And I say to you this morning, the Lord is here in this room this morning, speaking to you, seeking response from your soul and your mind and your heart regarding Himself. There is this inability by we humans to see the lord for who he is and where he is first of all in the offer of salvation jesus christ offers to you this day a glorious salvation and perhaps you've heard the gospel before and you've ignored it he's still here he's still offering it he's still saying to you i love you so much i want you to be in my in my family You do that by being born again. You do that by receiving Me as your Savior. As many as received Him, to Him gave He the right, to them gave He the right to become the children of God. You become a child of God by believing in Jesus Christ. A new family, a new set of values, a new life, a new heart, a new mind, all in Jesus Christ. And some of you just don't see Him even though He's here. For those of us that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, there are circumstances and situations that we're going through. The Lord is there. How can we miss the Lamb that was slain? A purpose of this message this morning is for you to open the eyes of that the Spirit of God has given to you to biblical truth that Jesus Christ is there with you, ministering to you, seeking to meet you where you are and give you His love and care in your life. That is part of the reason that you're here this morning. It is not coincidental. It's not accidental. It is intentional in the plan of God that you hear that about Jesus Christ and His love and His care for you. Just as John in that tremendous scene could not see the lion that had become the lamb that was slain, just so we, in the busyness and the activity of our lives, so often are completely blind to what's straight before us and that is Jesus Christ is there. Honestly, I often wonder, why do these folks come to the Bible Hour? (laughs) There's tailgating that could go on down at Riverfront Stadium today. There's lots of other places you could be, lots of other things. But my firm belief is that God speaks through those who come to this pulpit and they deliver the Word of God. It's not by their power, it's by the Spirit of God's power reaching to you where you are and seeking to give you His message. And you take that, and you carry that, and you go forward in your life, receiving what God has for you this day into your heart and mind, so that you as a believer live for Him. And here is one of the messages from this hymn today. Jesus Christ is there. May God open our eyes to see Him. Now John, John's response to what he sees here in Revelation 5 in seeing the Lamb. Once the eyes of John had been focused on the Lamb for the rest of the book of Revelation, John keeps gazing on the Lamb again and again. In the Old Testament, the Lamb referring directly to the Lord Jesus Christ occurs only once. And that's in Isaiah 53.7. Here's what it says. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. That's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll explain the authority why we say that. It's the only direct application of the lamb to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. In the Gospels, the Lord is referred to as the Lamb only twice. And both times early on in the book of John. And they're within a two-day period of each other. It's when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it says, and then the next day, John sees the Lord Jesus and he says the same thing. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the only time in all four of the Gospels where Jesus is Directly addressed as the Lamb of God. In the book of Acts, the Lord is referred to as the Lamb when the Ethiopian treasurer is reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He is reading, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before. And then he asked Philip, the evangelist, who's this guy speaking about, himself or someone else? And Philip climbs up in the chariot and he explains, he opens up the Scripture. This is talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about the One who died for you. This is talking about that great and glorious Lamb that was pictured in many ways in the Old Testament. But this is talking about that Lamb that died for you. You see, this Ethiopian had just been to Jerusalem. He had been there as a God worshiper. And he had bought this extremely expensive item, this rare scroll. And they were expensive at that time. And he was taking it back to Ethiopia to share with all those at the court. And he's reading through it in anticipation. And now Philip says, this is what that's talking about. That's talking about Jesus Christ. You saw many lambs slain there in the temple. Those pictures are gone now. The fulfillment has come. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has died. He's your substitute. He bled and died for you. You, by faith, can receive Him as your Savior. And the Ethiopian listens for several miles, apparently. And then finally, he says, Philip must have gone into the act of baptism as well. He says, look, here's a lot of water. What stops me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you can be baptized. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Oh my goodness! If we could have a confession like that today from one or two or three or more that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior and the Gospel being preached to you and you can say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we'll baptize you just as quickly as possible. In all of the epistles, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb only once. In 1 Peter 1, you were redeemed, that is, you and I were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a Lamb without spot and without blemish. Now contrast that, we can hold in one hand the number of times that Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb in both the Old and New Testament prior to Revelation. Once John sees Jesus Christ as the Lamb, for John in Revelation, from the time he sees this Lamb as though it had been slain, John cannot stop talking about the Lamb. 28 times from Revelation 5 to the end of the book, the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. Here is the One able to take the scroll and open its seals, revealing the judgment and plan of God for the earth, and for the grand return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords to execute judgment and set up His righteous rule of kingdom here on this earth. Now the Lamb moves and takes the scroll with the results we read about now in verses 7 through 10. And He, that's the Lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, nation, and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here the four living creatures who have been crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. They do it 24 hours a day without ceasing. They along with the 24 elders fall down with harps and bowls filled with incense, the incense being the prayer of the saints. Just an aside here on this. On Wednesday nights and on Thursday mornings, people gather here at Northern Hills to provide the raw material for the manufacture of heavenly incense. We have a prayer meeting here on Wednesday night. There's a ladies' prayer meeting here on Thursday morning. Prayers and praise, petition, intercession, ascend to heaven. With the prayers being taken by the divine intercessors, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and presented before the throne of grace, where their prayers are answered by God for His glory, for His praise, for His purposes, in His time and according to His schedule. And we find out here our perfected prayers are now made into incense to bring fragrance into the halls of heaven, which cannot be produced by any other means. Without our prayers, there's no heavenly incense. Praise God for our times of corporate and individual prayers. We just had a service here in the auditorium where silent prayers ascended heavenward. And they're now being incorporated into that grand heavenly scene we just read about where the incense is being released. What a privilege of prayer that is ours today and every day. Now, another reason, dear Christian, you've been brought here this morning is for me to speak about this with you. First of all, it's the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, it's about the power of prayer. May God guide us and help us in this wonderful, glorious privilege we have. Did you know that President Biden invited me to the White House? He's invited me to go into the very Oval Office to give him advice on education of boys and girls. This will take place never because that hasn't happened. (laughs) Did you know that God invites you to his throne room? Not some mere political figure with some kind of elective office or some kind of appointed office or, God help us, some kind of captured office through military coup that takes place, it seems, on a daily basis these days. But rather the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords says, Come in, come in boldly. Come in, my child, before this throne and express yourself as far as your desires those things that are deep in your heart, those things that are causing you such pain and such anguish, those things that you have as far as goals and hopes for yourself, your family, and your future, bring them to me here at my throne of grace. And I'll take those prayers and in my divine manufacturing plant, they're going to be made into incense. That will bring fragrance to heaven. The power of prayer, it is not because of what we say, but it is the one that we are saying it to that our prayers have power. Don't you love John Glock thundering here from this pulpit? It is someone that we are praying to who knows what we need and can do something about it. Every prayer that's prayed is answered. Not the way I want. Not the way I wanted. Not the way I anticipated. Not the thing that I had in mind. No! God's wiser than you and me. And He answers these prayers, each of these prayers, in His own way, in His own time, for His own purposes, in His own glory. The power and the privilege of prayer. Now, I'm going to put in another thought here. I apologize if I offend Dear ones, we do have a prayer meeting here. It's on Wednesday nights. And we'd like you to be here. There is a power in prayer. There is also a power in sharing in prayer that takes place. And the need for us in that prayer meeting to be sharing those things that are truly meaningful. May God make us a praying people. Dear ones, we're not going to get any farther than our prayers. Listen to this axiom about prayer. You have not because you ask not. How thrilled I was on Wednesday night to hear about the ministry that was taking place in a church in Mexico. And I had to pray quite honestly at the prayer meeting how envious I was of that gathering. They spoke about a young man who was reached through the volleyball outreach that they had. May God give us a volleyball outreach. <laughs> I don't know what outreach He'd give us. I don't know exactly what the plans are for us here. But I know we're not going to get anywhere if we don't pray about it. The privilege of prayer. Now all the living creatures sing a new song. It's about the Lamb, but it's also about us. By the blood of the Lamb, He has ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. The missionary efforts of God's people being proclaimed in this song. I can't help but think of Mike and Gay Moxness. Gay Allen came to camp back in the early 1970s. I forget who it was at the chapel. Maybe it was Jenny Brockman and a relative. Anyway, Gay got invited to come to our camp when she was just 13 years old. And she came to the camp regularly. Heather and I got to know Gay and her friends. And here's this lovely young woman. She goes off to Wheaton College. She gets trained she goes into areas of missionary work, and she meets a fellow, Mike Moxness, Mike who has a facility with language. He works with Wycliffe translators. They go off to a god-forsaken area, and that's a true statement—a god-forsaken area where just a generation before the people are hunting for each other's heads and cannibalizing each other. And now, Mike and Gay go into this area. And it's a people called the Aoye. They called them the people of the X-ray villages. Two rivers crossed and they formed an X when you looked at it from the plane flying in. And there are about 500 people at the most in this tribal group who speak a unique language. It's related to others, but still the relationship, you can't talk to these other tribes with one another. They don't have a common language. But Mike labored for years and years to break that language down into a written language. And then Gay would teach the women of the village and others to read. And then she would go through the village and spontaneously there were women reading these little books that she had created. And Mike continued on. And now sitting in our library is the complete New Testament in Aoye, there are churches, there are elders, there are believers that are there, all because of the bringing this gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. Everyone from every tribe, every nation, every people. Mike's now still work is working on the Old Testament. Psalms is finished and many other books. I believe that within five years Mike's going to come here and give us an entire Bible in the Aoye language. That's just one couple. With whom we have had contact, who are out giving the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And at the fruit of their ministry, they're going to join with those Aoye people in heaven and sing this glorious song. Myriads and myriads. A myriad is a countless or very great number. Thousands of thousands. The minimum is of that is four million. 2,000 times 10,000. But the implication, it's much, much more. It seems the number of angels is countless in the sight and hearing of John. In verse 11, I looked around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. The scene is not yet complete. I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits in the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Word upon word, attribute upon attribute, description upon description, the words pile on top of one another in this proclamation of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. All creatures, every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, in the sea, all that's in them, Men, women, animals, demons, those that are under the earth. I think the imagination of C.S. Lewis is needed here for us to realize what this heavenly scene is really going to be like. A Narnia-like scene which unfolds before us where every creature can't help themselves. They must praise the Lord, praise the Lamb. My mind always goes to Laszlo de He was giving a Wednesday night homily. He was so excellent at this. I want to give three scrapbook notes to you tonight. (laughs) First of all, I want to tell about the daffodils that I saw growing in my garden today. They cannot help themselves. They raise up in praise to God with the forsythia and the Hyacinth. It's all praise to God. They can't help themselves. Tonight at prayer meeting, we can't help ourselves, can we? (laughs) Oh, dear Laszlo. How he loved the Lord Jesus Christ and was willing to put it in such beautiful language. And you and I read it here that every creature is going to praise the Lord. Oh, to join in these sayings, these shoutings and songs of praise to the Lamb. Andy, or whoever's back there, would you put the, the slide up for us, please? It's our heavenly privilege to raise our voices in songs of praise here on earth. But prior to our heavenly home going, I'd like us to bear a testimony today. Consider this uh, heavenly choir practice, all right? I'd like everyone to stand, please. Don't worry, you'll sit down after you finish this. Everyone stand, if you're able. And let's do a little heavenly choir practice. This is what we'll be saying with all the other creatures. So join together. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now that was not bad. But let's try it again and put on your heavenly voice if you can. Now, I want to say to you, that was very good. Let's put on our heavenly voices now. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Be seated. The thought in these two chapters is may Jesus Christ be praised. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let's pray. Training days for reigning days. (laughs) Practice days for what's to come, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to think about that time of praise. We won't be speechless. (laughs) The text is given for us and we're going to be crying out about the worthiness, the majesty, the glory, the wonder of the Lamb of God. Thank you for this time to consider it here in Revelation 5. And dear Lord Jesus, may your heart be warmed. May Jesus Christ be praised. And we pray in his name. Amen.